The book of Jude has been described as the most neglected book in the New Testament. And I think you'll find as we get into it today, um, we might begin to understand why that could be. When did you last hear a sermon on the book of Jude or a Bible study? It's probably quite a while. Jude warns of God's judgment. It's not a feel-good book. It's not the kind of book that's real popular to preach on today. He warns of God's judgment on the ungodly. But he, he does also tell us what to do about that. And we'll look more at that next week in the second half of the chapter. So today on verses 1 to 16, next week will be verses 17 to 25. So what do we know about Jude and his situation? Hopefully you received a handout on the way in. There's a little bit of information in there about Jude that you can take home and ponder and think about. We don't know a huge amount about Jude, but in verse 1, he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now, this James is almost certainly James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he was Jesus' half-brother. Half-brother because uh, Jesus and James had the same mother, Mary, but Joseph was not Jesus' father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But Joseph was James's father. So they're half-brothers. Now, if Jude is the brother of James, then that makes Jude also the brother, a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's a humble man because he describes himself not as a brother of Jesus. He doesn't go around and strut his credentials. Oh, I guess who I'm related to. But he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. In fact, that word servant, doulos, is sometimes translated as slave. You don't often find a brother describing himself as a slave of his brother. It's because Jude recognised there was something altogether different about his older brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. He recognised, along with John the Baptist, Jesus must increase and I must decrease because he came before me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandal strap. So we can't say exactly who Jude wrote to either. What we do know is he says that he writes to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Just bear those three words in mind. Called, loved, kept. Because it's a recurring theme in the book of Jude. At the end of the book, he talks about now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before his glory. So going by that, it could have been written to any one of a number of churches because the Lord calls and keeps all his people like a bride for his son. We see his earnest spiritual desire for those called, loved and kept believers. He says, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. He wants them to enjoy more of God's mercy, more of God's peace, his shalom, and more of his abundant love. So judging from the letter as a whole and by what we know from history, many seem to think that Jude was probably written in the early to mid-60s AD, in the lead-up to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in AD 70. Now, if that's true, then it was a time of rising opposition to the gospel from the Romans. The Romans saw Christians as obstinate, uneducated mavericks because they refused to accept Rome's gods and Caesar as emperor, as lord. They refused to bow down and, and offer sacrifice and worship Caesar as lord. And it cost them dearly. 
but also many Jews were separating themselves from Christians because they thought of them as a, as a mob of dangerous heretics. They were claiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and, and they're acknowledging God as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, something that was foreign to Judaism. And yet, if they read the Old Testament more carefully, they would see that even in the Old Testament, there's indications of that. So in Jude's day, most Jews regarded Christians like we now regard Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses as dangerous heretical sect to be avoided at all costs. And it's clear from the letter that churches had been infiltrated by false teachers. That's the heart of the problem that Jude is addressing. And these false teachers were imparting wrong views of, about God's grace. They were basically saying, if you know the grace of God, it doesn't matter what you do because it's, it's, they're, being, uh, they're condoning sexual immorality and you'll see that come out. Uh, when Saskia reads the passage to us. Jude is also a bit edgy for us Protestants who know that the Bible contains 66 books which are the sole basis for right belief in practice because Jude quotes from two extra-canonical books, not from the Apocrypha that the Roman Catholics also accept, but two other books known to the Jews. He quotes from the Testament of Moses, sometimes called the Assumption of Moses, and from the Book of Enoch, the first book of Enoch. Now, I won't have time to go into that today, uh, other than to say that when, just because Jude quotes from these books doesn't mean he thinks they're on a par with the Bible, any more than if I quote a well-known hymn or poem when I preach from the Word of God. What is clear is that Jude combines the form of a first century letter with a sermon-like approach. When was the last time you heard a letter finished with a benediction? I can't think of one. So in this little one-chapter book, we'll see passionate language, vivid language, vivid images, reminders of Old Testament stories, grouping things into threes, repetitions of threes for the purposes of memory and finishing with a benediction. So this little one-chapter book is an intriguing mixture of tenacious boldness towards God's enemies and tender love for those who are called loved and kept for Jesus Christ. Jude offers timeless wisdom for believers who hold to godly biblical beliefs and behaviours that are at odds with the prevailing beliefs around them. I'd like to invite Saskia to read Jude 1 to 16 for us. Thanks, Saskia. All right, verses 1 to 16. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all of this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, 
On the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom black set darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Thanks, Saskia. I'd like to pray and ask that the Lord would help us to really take on board the message of this book. Let's pray. Father, we ask for um, the help of your spirit, the spirit who inspired these very words. Lord, please send him in greater abundance and fullness to us now so that what we hear may not fall on deaf ears or hard hearts, but that we would be like good soil that brings forth fruit, that brings forth an abundant harvest to your glory. Help us to take on board these warnings, to realise the seriousness of what Jude is talking about. We live in a world that's amusing itself to death, and we ask that we would hear for the sake of those who need to really hear, that we might pass on what we have heard. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess one of the outstanding things about this book is the tender note in which Jude starts here. To those who have been called who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Any preacher uh, would just love to start on a note like that with God's people because what's about to follow doesn't continue in the same kind of vein. He knows he has to change tack. But note the encouraging hint of God's election here. True believers are loved in God the Father, not just by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The world around may deride or pity believers and persecute them, but it is a great comfort for us to know that our love and salvation originates not in ourselves, but in God the Father, who keeps us for Jesus Christ. I gave up long ago trying to understand the mystery of how God's sovereign election works. All I know is that the scriptures teach that God is utterly sovereign over this world, including me, and I am utterly responsible for my sin that disconnects me from God. So if I'm going to be saved, if I'm going to be reconnected to God, it's going to have to happen on God's side not my side. I'm incapable of saving myself. So knowing that the Lord calls and keeps his people like a bride for his son, Jude pronounces a blessing like a benediction over them. Mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. True Christians can learn to cherish the fact that they're loved eternally in God the Father. 
and kept for Jesus Christ. It comforts me more than words can say to know that when I sin yet again, when I feel my flawed and wretched human nature rising up and and thinking thoughts and taking courses of action that I know I'm going to regret, that God doesn't give up on me. He keeps me for Jesus Christ. That he has called me in the gospel by the power of his spirit to be reconciled to his son. By the pure grace of God, mercy, peace and love come to me in divine abundance. I, I find huge encouragement from that and I pray you do too. That you would know, especially in difficult days, the wonderful love and compassion and mercy and peace of God that passes all understanding. But all of this stands in marked contrast to what now follows. From now until near the end of the letter, Jude delivers a series of the most fearful warnings and reminders of God's judgment. Jude explains the situation like this in verses 3 and 4. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Jude's natural desire would have been to write a letter of great encouragement to his fellow believers, but that was outstripped by the need to warn them about false teachers. These false teachers had slipped into the church and they are promoting immoral, ungodly, anti-Christian beliefs and practices. So he wrote this letter urging them to take a firm stand on the truth of the gospel, to contend for the gospel. We aren't told how these false teachers were doing this, whether it was itinerant preachers that had been invited in, that was fairly common in those days, or some of their own pastors and elders beginning to change their viewpoint and start to teach error, or whether they were behaving inconsistently with the gospel and leading others into sin by their ungodly example. It seems that it was probably that, that they were saying one thing but doing another. But Jude does not say, Jude, sorry, Jude does say what to do about this. He says, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Contending for the faith means to stand up for the truth about Jesus Christ. It's being prepared to uphold and defend what you know God says in his word. And the faith means the gospel. Notice it, it says, don't contend for your faith. It says contend for the faith. It's a deposit. It's what was once and for all time delivered to the church. It's like a sacred trust. The Christian faith didn't originate with human beings. Israel didn't come up with it. The apostles didn't come up with it. It was given by God. The faith is about Jesus Christ, God's dear son, who was revealed from heaven. And he came signed, sealed and delivered to us from God the Father, attested by the Holy Spirit. And, and this, this gospel, this good news is preserved for all time in the Bible by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's the responsibility of all Christians to preserve and defend this gospel, this gospel of Jesus Christ, especially by living according to its teaching. 
We're to model the way, the truth, and the life of Christ. But as we've just witnessed in Sam's ordination earlier, it's a particular responsibility of pastors and elders to live by the truth of the gospel because we are to teach and uphold and model what we believe and preach. It's no good saying one thing and living another. It's hypocrisy. So listen to how Paul described his relationship with the gospel at the beginning of the book of Romans. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And then he describes that gospel. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The faith once for all delivered to the church was like a precious jewel to Paul. The sacred truth about the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was promised in the Old Testament and manifest in the flesh in the New Testament, had to be proclaimed to everyone, everywhere, faithfully and consistently. Imagine if we all knew this gospel so well that we could just explain it with ease to others. Tech's been encouraging us in recent times to get familiar with the gospel and some of the arguments that he used against it so that we can share our faith. And I applaud him for that. I encourage you to think about the gospel. If someone asked you, what do you believe and why do you believe it, would you know how to answer them? Or would you be tongue-tied and say, come along on Sunday and listen to what the preacher says? Would you be able to just give a short, brief summary of what Jesus has done for you? It's really important. And if people push back against our explanation of the gospel, we need to remind ourselves that it's God's gospel. And we can't add to it or take away from it in order to somehow make it more appealing or palatable or nice for people. Because if we do that, we'll corrupt the gospel. Can't be added to. Can't be taken away from. It stands as is. It's once and for all time delivered to the church, God's holy people. Now, if we cannot consistently live, if we, and we cannot consistently afford to live at odds with the gospel without undermining the force of its truth, and dishonouring our Lord. And that's what Jude highlights here. He says, For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a licence for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only Sovereign and Lord. This sort of thing was not confined to Jude's day. When I was a young pastor, I was confronted with a very sad situation that I found immensely stressful. I was visiting a church, would you believe, to preach with a view to them calling me to be their pastor. It wasn't here. Long, long time ago. A bit like Stephen Young did here for us uh, just a few weeks back. And over the course of the weekend, someone shared with me, they divulged to me some information about the moral conduct of a previous pastor in the congregation. Now, if what that person shared with me was not true, it was a horrible thing to be saying and potentially very damaging to that pastor's reputation. If it was true... It could not be condoned or swept under the carpet. Now, I had a dilemma. I wrestled with 1 Timothy 5, 19 and 20. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. 
But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that others may take warning. I didn't have two or three witnesses. I just had one person saying something to me. But it was like one of those number puzzles. What they shared with me and what I knew about this man, if, I, if you added it up this way or that way or this way or whichever way you added it, it came to the same figure. I thought, I, th I think they're telling the truth. I think this is, this is right. It's not a lie. So it's not appropriate for me to say any more except that I had to take matters into my own hands and go and see this person. And ultimately they admitted to it. And it proved to be a real messy situation, a very difficult thing to deal with. I wish I didn't have to deal with it, but I did. We cannot avoid, we cannot evade the core implication of the gospel that we belong to God and not to ourselves. We are not our own, for we've been bought with a price. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he ransomed, healed and restored and forgave his people. And if that's the case, we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to our Lord and Master, our Sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ. And our bodies are not our own to do with as we please. We need to abstain from all forms of sin out of reverence and love for Christ. Paul put it like this to the church at Corinth. He said, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? By When he says wrongdoers, he means those who are consistently living wrongly. And he says, Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The glorious effect of being washed by the blood of Christ is that we're directed away from our natural inclination to sin and to please ourselves and we begin to discover we have a master and we want to please God. Paul said we make it our aim to please him. So Jude reminds us about three tragic Old Testament examples where God judged those who disregarded his word. He speaks about the unbelieving Israelites who perished in the wilderness. Uh, they'd been rescued from Egypt, but through their unbelief and disregard for God and his word, they died, the whole generation of them, except for Joshua and Caleb who believed the promises of God. So because they grumbled and complained, they were involved in idolatry and sexual immorality, and they didn't believe God's promises, it did their own thing, God pronounced judgment on them. You're not going to enter into my promised land. And he talks about the angels who rebelled against the Lord. There's a bit of uncertainty over what that's referring to, whether it's the angels who before the creation rebelled against God and were cast down. It seems that Jude, by quoting from the book of Enoch, um, believes that those angels were the sons of God in Genesis 6, who saw the daughters of men and that they were attractive and, and took them and had sex with them. And, and a raised up a generation of, of giants and, and problems um, by intermarrying angels and human beings. Now, many people deny that. Um, it seems to be that's the position that Jude is taking based on the Book of Enoch that holds that view. 
But either way, whichever it is, we are to know that God reserves even angels who rebel against him for eternal judgment. We're told that they're reserved in chains of darkness for final judgment at the last day. No one gets away from God. And then he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah. Jude explicitly reminds us of the idolatrous sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah, where all kinds of homosexual and heterosexual sins were practised and idolatry, and these things were celebrated. When Lot was in there, he was vexed, we're told. What God did to Sodom and Gomorrah should remind us all about the horrifying punishment of eternal fire from hell because fire and brimstone rained on the city. So this is serious. He's saying, think about the Israelites. They were given the promises, but through their unbelief, they didn't get to enter in. Think about the angels. They can't get away with doing what they please. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. It serves as an example to you. That's what it says here. They serve as an example, verse 7, of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Notice the contrast here with verse 2, where we're called and loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Instead of being called by the Lord long ago, the condemnation of these people was written about long ago. And instead of being loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, these people perverted the grace of God and denied Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So Peter tells us how we should behave when he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. By the grace of God and the power of his spirit, the Lord strengthens us to become living recommendations of what we profess to believe. The best way you and I can stand up and contend for the gospel is to be living recommendations of it amongst our family, in our workplace, with our neighbours. How do we do that? Well, it's not about trying to be perfect and get our act together and keep up appearances, appearing to to be a, a good Christian. That leads often to hypocrisy and covering things up. It's more like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, vexed with a burden on his heart, but not knowing what the answer was until evangelist pointed him to the way. And he comes to interpreter, explains the book, the scroll that he'd been reading and he couldn't understand, and he comes to understand the gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sins and rose again, that he might be forgiven. And the burden rolled off. And then he just kept walking on the way. He was still immature and he he fell into many traps and bypaths. But by the grace of God, God kept him and brought him safely to the celestial city. That's how we're to live. Keep going back to the book. Keep going back to the scrolls, the parchments, is is how it's described in the Old Testament. For us, uh, that's uh, the Bible. Jude isn't finished with driving home his point, though. He really wants the church to take this on board and know God will judge all forms of corruption and unrepentant sin. So verses 8 through to 16, he identifies a chief reason why and how these false teachers have strayed from the truth when he says, on the strength of their dreams... These ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. These false teachers are not basing themselves on the word of God. Instead, they probably had some vivid dreams and visions 
And they regarded these dreams and visions as more important and superior to a book of words. Rather than check their experience by what God had revealed in his word, they went off arrogantly at a disastrous tangent from the word. So to defend the gospel from those who teach error, you must know it well enough to detect a distortion of it. Back in the day when cash was king, young bank tellers were trained to detect counterfeit notes. A number of tellers, uh, this is many years ago, spent days sitting in a room and they were just given wads of cash to, to finger and to feel. And then their boss would slip in some counterfeit notes and they had to try and detect which was real and which was counterfeit. Now, after doing that for a while, they just developed a sixth sense and an instinct. They could feel instantly the difference in texture and feel and thickness of the note. And they could just detect counterfeit. And it's like that with us. If we gain familiarity with the real gospel, by reading God's word, soaking ourselves in it, hearing sound preaching, digesting good books and articles and blogs and podcasts that will de we'll develop an instinct for the truth. And we'll be able to detect when something's off mark, something's off beam, not right. Today, some parts of the church are changing their position on sexuality and gender and sexual conduct and who can rightfully marry, often in the name of being loving and tolerant or being more relevant in, our, in today's world. But the consequence of this is that those parts of the church which, remember, is loved in God the Father and kept like a pure virgin for Jesus Christ is being corrupted and defiled by false teaching. All around the world, the Anglican Church is being split over this issue. At the centre of the controversy is what it means to be true to the Lord and the gospel versus altering and watering down the message in order to be more loving and accepting. But at the heart of the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, delivered to God's holy people, is union with Christ by faith. The kind that leads us to stay faithful under persecution. Denying ourselves and taking up our cross and following Jesus has never been easy. I shudder to think what would have happened if Jesus had backed away from laying down his life for me, for laying down his life for his children, his people, because of his enemies or because of a horrible death. And he thought, no, my goodness, that's, that's horrible. Crucifixion, I, I can't go through with this. I'm so glad Jesus copped it because in doing that, he bore the wrath of God and substituted for the sins of many. How wonderful. That's the heart of the gospel. And converts from Islam know this when they're accused of blaspheming Allah and dishonouring their family because they've come to faith in Jesus Christ. You might be a Christian boy or girl uh, who trusts in Jesus, and I hope there's many of them, please know that you will probably face being belittled or bullied at school. But the Lord will be your helper. He will keep you for that day. You might be bullied in the workplace or overlooked for a promotion, but know this deeply loved in God the Father and you're being kept for that great day for Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit never leads Christians contrary to the will of God 
And the grace of God is sufficient to keep us walking through the valley of the shadow of death, even hop, uh, coping with, with abuse and condemnation and rejection. In contrast with the obedience that comes from faith, consider verses 8 through to 16, what Jude says about these false teachers. It's like something from a horror movie. Verses 8 to 10, they pollute themselves, reject authority, heap abuse on celestial beings. This is my words. They stupidly destroy themselves in their irrational slander. That's the effect of what he's saying. Like irrational animals, things they know full well, they just blunder on and do it anyway. Verse 11, he says, woe to them. This is, this is echoes of Jude's older brother, Jesus, with the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. Well, Jude's saying, woe to you, false teachers. He's saying, they follow the evil way of Cain. What did Cain do? Out of envy of his brother, whose sacrifice was acceptable, he killed his brother. And God cursed Cain and banished him. He mentions Balaam. They followed the error of Balaam. Who was, who was Balaam? He was, he was a prophet who was hired to prophesy against Israel and was killed. Even though it's, it's the strangest thing in the book of Numbers reading about this, this prophet Balaam, but he, he appeared to be faithful and he said, I can only speak what the Lord tells me to speak and whenever he saw Israel, the spirit of God would come upon him and he'd prophesy good over them. But he was silly enough to allow himself to be hired for money to try and curse Israel that he knew full well was blessed by God. He acted contrary to God. And a few chapters later you read that Balaam was put to death. And they destroy themselves with Korah, who is swallowed up by the ground as punishment for rebelling against Moses, God's appointed leader. Korah and all his family. They said, Moses, who are you? To, you you're not the only one that's, that's got authority around here. And Moses fell on his knees. He said, oh, Lord, show them who has your authority. And he said, if something natural happens to these people and they die an ordinary death, then I'm not your leader. But if something unusual and extraordinary happens and the ground beneath them opens up and swallows them, then let that happen. And that's exactly what happened. The ground underneath Korah and all those rebels just opened up like a huge sinkhole and down they went. Men, women, children, boys, girls, flocks, herds, the whole thing. This is serious. And he's saying... Think about Cain, cursed by God. Think about Balaam, he dies. Think about Korah, who perished in rebellion. In verses 12 and 13, they stain your meetings without a qualm. They, they, they gather with you at your love feasts, and he's, he's saying, they're, but they're selfish shepherds, empty clouds. You look at the clouds and you look for rain and they, it just doesn't come. Fruitless trees. You go looking for fruit. There's no fruit on them. We know what Jesus did to the fig tree with no fruit. He says, wild waves foaming up their shame like wandering stars reserved for eternal darkness. How can you plot your course if, if the stars keep moving? It's no good for navigation. They're not fixed. They're meandering and wandering. And it was... It was a metaphor for their life, just doing their own thing, not fixed in position as God intended them to be. Such an appalling future. If only these, these people realised it. 
And then verses 14 to 16, his final point is that Enoch, the seventh one from Adam, he goes out of his way to identify which Enoch, and he's saying, yes, that Enoch, the walk with God, seven generations from Adam, had predicted God's judgment on ungodly grumblers and fault finders like these men. And he quotes from the book of Enoch. So we shouldn't be surprised when these false teachers damage the church. It's saddening. It's infuriating. But it shouldn't surprise us. It's been written about long ago. So to wrap up, Here's how I believe the book of Jude requires us modern day believers to think and act. If we are to contend for the faith properly, we need to look to God for abundant mercy, peace and love because nothing else is going to sustain us. Raging anger won't sustain us. It'll either fizzle out or lead us to do wild and stupid things in God's name. Like we saw on Capitol Hill in the last days of the Trump administration. Wild, frenzied attacks in the name of, we're angry at you. That doesn't achieve anything. Fear and timidity is not going to be the solution either. That'll either lead us to keep quiet, shut up, just sit down, sit tight, don't say anything. Or lead us to compromise. Just as the Anglican church is facing. We can't compromise what we believe. We can't apologise for the faith once for all delivered to God's holy church. What we need is to have faith that works by love. The kind of love that drives out fear. The kind of love that cannot keep quiet when Christ's honour is at stake. The kind of love that makes us more than conquerors through him who loved us. The kind of love that convinces us that the Lord is worth whatever it takes to stay the journey, even if people poo-hoo us for it. Because neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember. We loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. That's our calling as church, as God's people. So let me ask you this. Do you love the Lord Jesus? Have you let his love wash over you to the depths of your being? I'm not asking, do you love him perfectly? I'm asking you in the sense like Jesus did with Peter. And he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yeah, Lord, you know I do. And he just denied the Lord three times. And three times Jesus kept saying, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Don't be put off. That's the kind of love that will keep us on track, walking the faith living it out, being true, sharing the gospel when others poo-hoo us for it. Contend for what you believe. Stand up for it. It's worth dying for. It's the truth. Live the way, the truth and the life out in front of others by the grace of God. Don't be led to condone sexual immorality, idolatry, doing your own thing. It leads only to death, as Jude has so clearly pointed out. Don't let others bully you into silence or into compromise. Stand your ground assured of your calling, knowing that you are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Father, we praise you for the boldness of this book of Jude. It, it puts steel into our bones. It, it puts fibre into our being. It helps us to stand tall and to realise that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. It helps us understand that though we are weak, you are our strength and your grace is sufficient for us because your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for this precious hope of the gospel, the faith once for all delivered to the church, this gospel of Jesus Christ by which we're saved. Thank you, Lord. Will you please strengthen your church, help us here to stand firm on this word, Grace us with elders and pastors who will preach this truth and not compromise. Deliver us from false teaching. Deliver us from evil. Build your church, Lord. Make us strong in you. And Lord, not just us. Have mercy upon your church in our nation where there are Christian leaders who are sorely torn and tempted to compromise. They know full well what the Bible teaches, but they, they want to be relevant. They don't want to be despised. Whatever it might be that's going on in their hearts, help them to realise, Lord, that that is not the way that leads to life. That the only way is to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow the Lord Jesus right to the cross. Will you please help Christian leaders to stand firm in you? Not compromise. Will you help us all, Lord, to realise that we're only one decision away from terrible mistakes, but that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That is our hope. We are greatly loved. We bless you for your goodness to us. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.